Day 37 of Heart Dive 365. I'm your Bible study friend, Kanoi. Welcome to the Heart Dive Podcast. Welcome back, friends. Today we are in Exodus chapters 22 through 24, where God continues to lay out the laws, and also He is going to establish His covenant with His people at Mount Sinai. But before we begin, we are studying in the ESV translation by Crossway, and if you could please help us out by just hitting that like button, especially if you are a part of this family, if you are a heart diver and you say, I love the Word of God, I'm ready to study, and I believe that every single person in this world needs to be in God's word because this is where we find our daily provision of everything that we need. And if you could invite somebody to this Bible study, that would be awesome too. I know plenty of people have, and we're so grateful for that. More than anything, we just want people to be in the word. We want people to grow their relationship with Christ. And this is absolutely one of the ways that you can do that. Otherwise, you can always head to our website, heartdive.org. If you have any questions about our ministry, what we're doing, our mission, the heart behind it, all the good things, it's all right there. Also, you could sign up for our newsletter by hitting on over to our website, heartdive.org slash newsletter, and you will receive in your inbox every single day, the video, the podcast, the notes, all the good stuff. So without further ado, let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You already know what that looks like, God. You've already spelled it out. It's been written in heaven. And so now we are wanting to take part in that in partnering with you to be able to make it happen here on earth, not on our own will, but simply by walking in step with you. Every single day, every breath we take, every word we speak, we want it to come from you, Holy Spirit. So we just open up ourselves to you today to be able to envelop our spirit, to take up residence in it, to dwell within us so that our minds, our thoughts, our actions, our words, everything will be submitted to you and will come forth from that place that is within us. We love you so much and we just just ask that you please forgive us for anything that we have done that has hurt your heart, hurt somebody else, maybe something that we've done that was completely against your commandment, or maybe where we stopped short of the things that you asked us to do. And so I pray that you will speak clearly to us today, Lord, in full truth, so that we are able to hear that once again. I pray for confirmation through your word today. I pray for revelation in your word today. And we just want to be ready and willing to be obedient children of God. So, help us to forgive others as well, because we know that is a direct commandment, and we also want to be set free today. We love you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we left off in chapter 21 with the laws about restitution, and so they continue here in chapter 22. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for one ox and four sheep for one sheep. So what happens here is that if this person is so poor that they had to go stealing somebody else's ox and sheep, well, guess who's going to have to repay the four sheep and the five oxen? It's going to be their family. And so this is actually holding the family responsible for their children as well. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. So notice there's no jail time here. They are actually having to pay restitution. And that restitution, especially for animals, we see here is more than the value of that animal. Why is that? Because animals were the 
the livelihood of these people. And without it, they're not only losing the value of that animal, but also the work that this animal could have done. And why would there be blood guilt whenever the sun comes up? Well, if you think about it, there's not all of the street lights going on like there is today. So at nighttime, you really would not be able to see. There could be confusion in that case. But as soon as that sun comes up and there's light, there's going to be a higher responsibility or accountability. And if you look at that spiritually, it's the same way. The more light that is shed upon the Word of God in your life, the more you will actually be held accountable because now you know even more as to what is right and wrong. But with that said, also with the more light that is shed upon the Word in your life and the more righteous and obedient you are, the more or the higher reward you will reap in heaven. Verse 5, if a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and in his own vineyard. So here we see God putting a value on personal responsibility and accountability. And we don't always have to be present for sin to occur because James 4 says that anyone who knows the right thing to do and then doesn't do it, they sin. So if we are negligent or careless, like in this case here, when we are supposed to be good stewards and careful about the way we conduct business or take care of the outskirts of our land, then there's going to be accountability. So heart check. Is there anything in your life that you are neglecting to care for or where you are being irresponsible? Verse six, and if a fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. Now, if the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing, of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor." So this tells me that there are some cases that simply need to be dealt with in the church, dealt with before God, not necessarily taking it to the courts, as is the case for somebody who might put something in the hands of their neighbor to hold on to. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and if it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. So this oath by the Lord would have been an acceptable testimony of innocence. And the fact that the owner has to accept the oath is kind of like saying they are innocent until proven guilty. And remember how we were talking about how, man, don't you wish you could go back to the days where your word was good enough? Well, one of the reasons why the word was so powerful is because if someone were to bear false witness, they would have been held accountable if they were found to be lying or to be twisting the truth. And they would have suffered severe consequences. There was so much value placed on the word. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. Now, if a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. But if the owner was with it, 
he shall not make restitution. If it was hired or rented, meaning there was payment made, it came for its hiring fee. And therefore, they will not be held responsible. The, the renter of that particular thing won't be the one to have to pay for it. Now, if a man seduces a virgin, and this word seduces here actually implies consent. So we are not talking about rape. So if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed, so this would be someone who is not engaged to be married and lies with her. He shall give the bride price or the dowry. So basically a dowry or an engagement gift was given to the family of the bride whenever a man wanted to marry a woman for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. So remember how parents actually have the say in who their children married. So in this case, if a man brings home a lady and dad says, nope, not good enough, then that family is going to have to pay for her anyway, because basically that engagement began the moment that he seduced her. And so they would be held accountable for that. Verse 18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. And sorcery was practiced both via demonic power as well as through drugs, because the Greek word for sorcery, we have the root pharmakos or pharmaceutical. And why is this such a big deal? I mean, there are a million other things that you could think is way worse than practicing sorcery. Well, it is because this is a crime against God, because you remember in the Ten Commandments, the very first one is there shall be no other gods before me. And so consulting the dead is like you are trying to tap into some other sort of power to be able to control a situation. And there's really no record in the Bible of a sorcerer or a witch being put to death, but it is absolutely implied here. And because there is record of people committing false worship, those situations actually could have included sorcery. But again, no record of this actually happening. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. And I'm like, do we even need to say this? Oh my gosh. Apparently we do. I don't know. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So treat foreigners in a very nice way. In other words, be kind. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. So here we're seeing God's heart and who he really values or tries to protect because they are the weaker people. So for example, the foreigners, the widows, the children. And if you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Verse 25, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, so this meaning anybody, any one of your Hebrew neighbors, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. Now this word ruler, it might be in your translation, gods or judges, because it is the Hebrew word Elohim. Remember, Remember I said before that that word is used for many gods in the Bible, but in this case, it is likely referring to rulers or judges. 
You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. And I asked, why would he keep the animal with its mother for seven days? I'm like, is that, again, his compassion for the mama? Or is it symbolic of the eighth day of circumcision, of when you consecrate a child? I'm not sure. If you know, let me know. But here we see God commanding a promptness in giving him what is rightfully his. And because he is speaking about the fullness of the harvest and the firstborn, this could actually be applied to the tithe. But in general, it's simply quick obedience is what he's speaking about. And as we just discussed, whenever we know we are to do something or to bring an offering and we don't do it, it is sin. And now an added layer of promptness has actually been added to that command. So heart check. Is there anything that God has asked of you that you have not brought to him? So what is the delay? Verse 31, and you shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dog. So in other words, don't act like an animal. Don't act like a savage. And as we will see throughout Leviticus, he is going to lay out what is clean eating and what is not because holiness is actually marked by the diet and still with us today. Our holiness is going to be marked by the things that we are spiritually eating. I really need to stop talking with my hands. Chapter 23. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. So while this is referring to court cases, we can look at it as spreading false information or speaking with malicious intent towards someone as being prohibited by God. I mean, to put it plainly, no gossip girling in the kingdom. And the one spreading the gossip isn't the only one at fault because sometimes we think, oh, if I'm not saying the words, then I am not contributing to the gossip. But it's actually also the one who listens, who has an ear that itches to hear all of those juicy details. So heart check, do your ears perk up whenever there's gossip? Are you speaking behind others' backs? Verse two, you shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So in other words, you are to have blind justice, no biases based on any sort of social standing. And there's also no buying of expert witnesses, which we see today in court cases. Verse four, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. And if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Now, this was a society where revenge was the knee-jerk reaction. So to hear God commanding this new idea of being kind to your enemies really must have ruffled some feathers. And it doesn't seem fair, doesn't make sense in our human minds to be kind to someone who is not kind to you. Yet this would be one of the many things that would separate Israel from everybody else. People would know that they are different if they return their enemy's lost donkey. So heart check. Would you return the donkey? I mean, if you have the choice to help your enemy, would you do it? Verse six, you shall not pervert justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. 
Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Because if someone comes offering you a big old chunk of change to be able to change your story just a little bit, I think a lot of people would be tempted to do it. And that is why God has to put this regulation in place. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So you guys know how you were treated whenever you were in Egypt as a foreigner. So don't treat people that way whenever they come into your land. And notice he already said this. And anytime God repeats himself in the Bible, it is like exclamation points. Listen up. This is important. And now God is going to lay out the laws and the Sabbath and festivals in verse 10. For six years, you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. So this would be an incredible act of faith for an entire year not to work. I know what that looks like. Trusting God for your provision, but also it is God's provision for the poor and for the wild beasts of the land. And I just thought, wow, that just expanded God's heart even more in my heart. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. So not only is he calling the people to rest on the Sabbath day, but now he's even widening the scope more by including animals and the women. Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. So in other words, you need to be completely innocent of evil. Verse 14, three times in the year, you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for the seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt and none shall appear before me empty handed. So we've already heard about this feast of unleavened bread. Remember that the leaven represents the haste in which they had to leave Egypt so that their bread had no time to rise. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. This is also known as the Feast of Weeks, and we'll learn more about these in detail later, so I won't go over that right now. You shall keep the Feast of Ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field of the fruit of your labor. This one also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Three times in the year you shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until morning. So in other words, no leftovers. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. So before it's officially called the tithe, we see the concept in place right here, bringing God the first fruits and the best of the harvest. And this would prove that they acknowledge that everything comes from God. And while tithing will not get you saved because we are saved by grace and not by works, there are still massive benefits to it, with one of the main ones being an unspeakable joy whenever you are generous and you trust in God's provision rather than being stingy and doubtful. And we can apply this to so many things in our lives. I mean, the first fruits of our day or our energy, the first fruits of our talent, the first fruits of our time. So heart check. Are you bringing God the best of your first fruits or does he only get the leftovers? 
Continue in verse 19, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. The Jewish faith actually takes this to the extreme in not even allowing anyone to drink milk or any dairy products while eating meat. You cannot eat cheeseburgers because that would be considered not kosher. Uh, But what this really relates to, I believe, is the fact that this was actually a cruel pagan practice to boil young goats in their mother's milk. And I believe it was like a fertility rite that they used to do. So I think that is why God put that into place. But again, the Jewish faith took it to the extreme and they don't even eat cheeseburgers. No shade on them. That's just what they believe will be the thing to keep them obedient to this law. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. And this, of course, points us to Jesus, the angel of the Lord, to guard us and also bring us to the place that he has prepared. Because remember, Jesus says, I'm going to my father's house and there I'm going to prepare a place for you. So pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him." But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces." You shall serve the Lord your God, and He will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I mean, these are wonderful promises by God if they will listen and obey what he is commanding. And I will send hornets before you. And I was like, okay, I know I have read this before. I'm pretty sure I've even talked about it, but I cannot recall what in the world these hornets represent. (laughs) Couldn't even find it today when I was studying. So I don't know if this is just pointing to some sort of supernatural phenomenon or if the hornets are a metaphor for something. So somebody let me know in the comments. And these hornets will drive out the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. So God is letting them know that he is not in a rush and that he is going to drive out the inhabitants just little by little. And this would grieve the heart of the ones who might be impatient and waiting, but he makes it very clear. If he were to drive them out quickly, they would end up walking into a land that is barren and taken over by wild beasts. So he is keeping some of them there and he's taking little portions of them out at a time so that those who are left in there will continue to work the land and maintain that fruitfulness. Because remember, he said he is bringing them to a land flowing with milk and honey. And Paul says that we should count it all joy whenever we go through trials, for it is in that where we learn patience, because it will require us to stay close to the Lord and to be persistent in pursuing Him. So heart check, when God is only moving little by little, How do you fare? Is your patience wearing thin or is it increasing? 
Verse 31, and I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. So this is the land, the promised land that God is gifting them. And it is 300,000 square miles, yet they're only going to take possession of 10% of that, just 30,000 miles, which shows us that just because God gives you something doesn't mean that you possess it. We have to reach out and take hold of the promises. We got to take hold of that forgiveness and that grace and the love, the authority, the joy that flows abundantly from Him. And it's all available to us, but it requires us to partner with Him and to receive it in faith. So heart check, what has God offered you that you have not taken possession of? And you might have to think a little bit about that one, but verse 33, they shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So once again, he is saying no idolatry. And now God is going to confirm his covenant with his people here in chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. So who are these 70 of the elders, remember, these are the ones that Moses's father-in-law, Jethro, uh, recommended for Moses to appoint. He's calling them up to him, but they still have to stay far enough away, and they're still going to have to worship him. And sometimes we can feel that way. You know, we can feel so far from God, yet we still got to worship him, you know, in those moments, because it's in the worshiping from afar where we are going to see that they will be able to witness his glory. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So they could only approach God on his terms. Moses was the only one who would be able to go into his presence, but it was still massive grace and such a privilege for them to even be able to come this far. And by the way, Nadab and Abihu, these are Aaron's sons. Verse three, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. So everybody here has good intentions. Now, of course, they make this promise, but every single one of them failed because we all fail. We all fall short of the glory of God. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars, which represents all 12 tribes, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. So remember, because they are making covenant, that would be a treaty between two parties. So him throwing this blood against the altar would represent God as one party. And we'll see what he does with the other half of the blood. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So he sprinkles the other half on the people, which represents the other party in this covenant, in this treaty. And when I read this, my spirit kind of did one of these like, you know, like if I saw blood coming at me, that was going to be that knee jerk reaction to kind of like duck and get out of the way. And it seems kind of like this gruesome act. But if we think about and understand sin and forgiveness, and again, God's heart, 
it will make a little bit more sense. So let's take a look here. Why blood? Because people ask me all the time, why would God do this? Why does he require bloodshed? in sacrifices. Well, blood represents life. And because God is holy and sovereign and the judge of the universe, and sin is worthy of death, then there would need to be some sort of blood substitute in order to atone or make payment for those sins. So it's either going to be the life of the person or there's going to have to be some sort of atonement. So animals would be the substitute for the life of that person. It's a life for a life. But sadly, in the Old Testament, this was only a temporary fix because they would have to come again with another sacrifice because it wouldn't cover them eternally. And this is why we needed a savior. This is why we needed the Messiah to be the final and the perfect sacrifice for all of our sin, to take our place, to take on the wrath of God. So when the blood was sprinkled on the altar, this signified that the people were able to now approach God once again, and then the blood on the people symbolized the fact that they were forgiven and they were able to be reunited with God once again. So the sacrificial death was the atonement or the payment for for that sin. Verse 9, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as if it were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Now, we know that the Bible says that no one has ever seen God face to face. So, this is what would be a theophany or could have been a Christophany, meaning the appearance of Jesus before his incarnation. And we say this because of the fact that it says that there were feet there. So we are seeing like a person. So it wouldn't be God the Father. It would have had to have been the Son because no one has come face to face with the Father. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Now, fellowship meals or celebratory meals would often take place after covenant was made or an oath was made to be able to seal it up and say, yes, we're in agreement. We're going to fellowship. We're going to celebrate this. But notice it says he did not lay his his hand on the chief men of the people. So they're having this fellowship with God, but there isn't that intimacy that only Moses has or that intimacy that we have with the Father because of Jesus. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there. Remember, Moses is the only one who's able to come to God, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So remember when I said that God is only going to reveal things to the ones that he knows are going to do something with the words that he has spoken. And so he knows that Moses is going to tell the people. And so he is going to give him that instruction through these tablets. Now, there were two tablets, of course, and we all have that picture in our mind of whenever we learned it in Sunday school or we read it in a children's Bible of the two tablets of stone. But many of us probably never ask, why were there two tablets? Well, typically in a Middle Eastern treaty, there would have been duplicate copies made, kind of like the carbon copy that we used to make whenever we didn't have these digital files nowadays. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua. So here we see the second mention of Joshua, and Moses went 
went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. So this plural form saying us means that Joshua accompanied him up the mountain. But remember, up here in verse two, it says that Moses alone shall come near to the Lord. So perhaps Joshua only accompanied him halfway up the mountain. I mean, we know that he is not able to go into the presence of God, but he did go with him up the mountain regardless. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. So Aaron, his brother, hid the mouthpiece of Moses, the prophet for Moses, and whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. So they are to maintain order among the people at the base of the mountain. And of course, we know they're actually going to fail at this. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And I was thinking to myself, what was Moses doing every day in that cloud? You know, last night we were driving back up to my house and we live at a really high elevation, like 4,200 feet or something. And we were driving in a cloud and I was telling my daughter, look, we're in the clouds. But I think this cloud must have been incredible. I mean, I don't know if you were a kid and watched the Care Bears. I always dreamt of being able to be in a cloud one day or to sit on a cloud in that comfort and that magic feeling. But yeah, I just kind of wondered what was Moses doing for the six days in that cloud? I don't know. Just makes it a little more real whenever you think about those things. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I don't know if there is a mega significance with this particular 40 days and 40 nights, but we've seen 40 days and 40 nights in other places like Noah's flood, Jesus going into the desert for 40 days. So there's definitely significance in the Bible with the number 40 and it relating to a length of time. But regardless, this was a long time. I mean, a month and 10 days that these people are sitting at the base of the mountain just waiting every single day for Moses to return once again. So we will continue this reading tomorrow. But for now, let's take a look at some deep dive questions. How do these laws reflect what God values? How can these laws be applied to modern-day societal justice? How do you see the treatment of foreigners in your country? How do you view them? While Moses is in a privileged position in the eyes of both God and man, what emotions do you think he may have actually felt in his place of isolation? What significance does the writing of the Word hold for us today, and how can we apply it personally? So Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for continuing to show us more and more of who you are, your compassion and your desire for fair treatment and purity and justice. It's all so evident in this reading today. These principles are not just ones that are buried deep within another culture or in an ancient text somewhere, but they are still so applicable to our lives today. And so I pray that we fully understand the reasons behind these institutions. And I thank you, Lord, for laying out the blueprint that you left for us to be able to shape our own society today. I pray, God, that we will come back to the morals and the ethics that reflect a desire for purity and a heart for the ones who truly need help. I pray that we will see the practicality of things like not spreading false information or going with the flow of the crowds and how they will only manifest to our detriment. Help us to be kind to those who mistreat us. And I pray that we will all return the donkey, should we be given the chance. 
Help us to treat everyone with fairness and never according to the social status or wealth. I pray that we will carry your heart whenever it comes to foreigners, especially in our own homeland. This is not a declaration of surrender or anything to do with immigration policy, but it is a heart issue and the way we view humanity. Help us to be good stewards and managers of every good gift that you give to us. I pray that we will be mindful of when rest and refreshment is so necessary. I mean, some of us can be so driven by work that we refuse to even take a moment to trust in your provision. So may we never lack that faith, but always bring you our first and our best of everything we have. And I pray we will be innocent of evil and turn the other way when there is a door in front of us to pique our interest or our curiosity. Give us a desire to maintain our own purity in both thought and action and guard our minds. And may we always take every thought captive and make it obedient to you. I thank you, Lord, for preparing a place for us. We look forward to that day that we get to walk into our own promised land. But until then, I pray that we will not partner with the world, but only with you as we walk in righteousness and holiness. We know that when we do so, we too will be protected and blessed in our coming and in our going. So help us to trust you, especially when the time in the wilderness seems to drag on and the steps feel tiny. We are so grateful to be a part of your chosen people under the covenant that was built on love. Thank you, Jesus, for being the perfect sacrifice to atone for our sins. We have failed miserably and will continue to, yet you never forsake us. And we are so grateful for that. And I pray that we will always see and reveal your glory to be seen across the entire earth. We love you so much. We honor you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Heaven and salvation is a divine gift that is given to us by grace. None of us deserve it. In fact, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, and every single one of us have fallen short, and then we desperately need someone to pay that price. And Jesus did it. He didn't do it because we are righteous on our own merit. He did it because He loves us, and He wants to spend eternity with us. But it won't happen if we don't receive Him before we leave this earth as Lord and Savior. Hell is a very real thing, and there is no second chance after we take our last breath here. So I want to be able to give someone the opportunity today who is saying, I'm ready. I've never given my life to Christ. I don't know where I'm going to end up after I die, but I don't want to live another day without knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt where I am going to end up. I see now that this is real and I want to believe. So if that is you, we're going to say a prayer and I'm going to put the words on the screen so that you can say them audibly with your mouth because the Bible says that when you believe and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that he died and rose again, then you will be saved. So we're going to say this prayer together. Believe it in your heart, speak it with your mouth, and know that this is indeed the day of your salvation. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I believe that you came, you died, and you rose again. I confess my sins to you today, and I turn from them, and I now live my life for you. I know that I am forgiven of all my sins, so I receive you now as Lord and Savior, and I belong to you, Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.